So we have Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 through 7 to go through this morning. And so I'm going to read that aloud as we consider what God would have us learn. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. Since He is the one who deserves our respect and reverence, let's take a moment and bow our heads together and ask that He would give us the right attitude as we contemplate the things He's teaching us today. Almighty God, we thank You for this Word and we pray that You would help us to receive it with gratitude. I do pray, Lord God, that You would help us to be quiet in mind and heart. Father, if there is heartache or pain or distraction or busyness or, or anything that might stand in between us and what You would have us learn this morning, God, I pray that You and the power of Your Spirit would set it aside. Help us to, to truly engage in what You have for us today. And perhaps it is even so that You have put it together that this message today might be key to what we're going through in life, may in some ways help us to overcome the circumstances of life that might distract us and trip us up. So I pray, Lord God, that You would, you would help us to be ready for this. I pray that we would approach Your, your throne with, with humility, but also with great confidence that the blood of Jesus Christ has washed away every sin and that we are able to come near to you, not because of what we have done, but because of what you have finished on the cross. And we pray this in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen. As we progress to verses 4 through 7 of chapter 5 this morning, we are still in the context of drawing near to God in a worshipful way. That is what we're learning how to do thanks to the instruction of the preacher here. Solomon's continuing to give us further specific examples of how we must approach God's house. And these verses are going to expand on the concept of exactly which words we should use in the setting of worshiping the Lord. It is a sad concession that vows even need to exist in human interaction. If man were not a fallen race, then the things that man said that he would do, he would simply do. There would be no need for two witnesses. There would be no need for penalties in the event of someone failing to keep their word. Man's yes would be yes, and his no would be no. But the sin nature that we must grapple with daily means that man's word is not worth as much as it should be. And so it is expressed in Psalm 116.11, where the psalmist said in his alarm, all mankind are liars. You don't see that verse too often in the Hallmark section, Christian encouragement. This is not an overreaction on the part of the psalmist, and it's not an example of hyperbole here. Truth does not come easily to fallen man. And so God has allowed for vows, and He has made room for promises and oaths in the interactions between man and women, and women and women, and man and man, because they bring some added security to the things a person says that he will do. A vow is a way to express sincerity in a person's intention by evoking the authority of someone more powerful and noble than themselves. 
When I make a vow, I'm confessing that people don't often follow, follow through with what they say they're going to do. But I'm evoking the power and authority of something above myself in such a way that others will have greater confidence that what I say I'm going to do is more than just lip service. So in a world where dishonesty is so commonplace and a person's word is often something less than binding, a vow ups the ante and it helps others to understand what you mean and that you mean what you say. So let's look at the practical benefits for a moment of, of promises, of oaths, and of vows so we can see why Solomon would spend so much time here instructing us in this. A vow can make a distinct beginning to an important action that might otherwise be put off for too long. I saw a t-shirt that was pretty clever a while back. It said, Procrastinators of the world, unite tomorrow. I loved it so much, I determined to buy it. I'll get around to it one of these days. I think that sure does a good job of vividly illustrating that our good intentions don't always produce results, or at least they don't produce results in any kind of a timely way. Most people don't delay in doing the things that are easy to do, the things that they love to do, but many of the things that we need to do go against our human nature. So it will be in our nature to resist those things. And if we're not walking in the Spirit with our eyes on Christ, with our trust in Him, then it is very easy to find ourselves saying, I know the thing that I need to do, but I'm not going to do it right now. There'll be time to do that later. Holiness runs contrary to the human nature. Self-discipline then becomes a very useful tool for us, doesn't it? As we try to deal with these things that are so good for us, but we don't run too naturally. When we make a vow, when we make a promise or take an oath, in a sense, we are making it important for ourselves to not delay. We are making a penalty for ourselves if we fall into this pattern of procrastination. It is often said that the hardest step in any given journey is the first step. We all love to plan about what we're going to do. We like to dream big about the future, but actually taking that first step and moving towards it can be very, very difficult. A vow can help to give us that nudge to get going on what we know that we need to be doing in faith. A vow can be helpful to us as a way of continually reminding us of an important intention that otherwise might quickly be forgotten. God does not instruct His people to holy behavior in just certain special situations. There's not really, if you think about it, a spiritual part of your life and then a regular part of your life because we are fully spiritual creatures. Everything we do involves our spirit. And so as people of covenant, we are called not to just be holy in certain parts of our lives, but to be holy continually. We are called to persist in sanctification. Think of the enduring language behind so many of the fundamental commands that Jesus gave His disciples. Think about this. As branches that are connected to a vine, what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to abide in Him, right? This is, a, this is a participle in the Greek. We are to continue abiding in Him, to stay connected on a regular basis to the One who is our source of strength and nourishment and life and hope. We are to abide regularly. 
In what way should you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus? You should do it daily, right? Daily pick up your cross and follow after Christ. How is a Christian instructed to pray by the Apostle Paul? Without ceasing, right? Regularly thinking about the Lord, engaging Him in your mind and in your words. If the Christian life is a marathon race, as Paul says that it is, then what does the Apostle urge us to do in that race? He urges us to endure. To endure to the end of the race so that we might receive the prize. Do not quit. Do not become distracted. And so a vow can assist us in this. When we think about things in such serious terms, it can cause us to be less apt to take a detour, to take a little rest, to sit over here for a while when we know we should be engaged in the things of the Lord God. A vow can strengthen our resolve to continue on this new path that the Spirit has put us upon without detour or deviation, and it helps counter our natural tendency to become distracted and to forget what God needs us to have in our minds. A vow can formally define in clear language what two parties can expect from one another. We see this frequently in oaths that take the form of a covenant. What are the conditions of this covenant? If we're to interact in a meaningful and lasting way, then what can I expect of you and what should you expect of me? We often think we know those things, but two people's expectations often don't line up properly. When you engage in a vow or when you bring things forward as an oath, then it gives you an occasion to speak about the distinct expectations that you have in your relationships and interactions with others. It also helps you to think about what are the consequences if you do break this relationship covenant or if you, if you are not behaving as you should be as expected by the person that you're interacting with. A vow is not necessarily a literal covenant arrangement, but it carries many of the same characteristics. There are binding regulations to a vow. There are penalties for voiding the vow. There's appeal to authorities above yourselves who enforce the vow. So the weakness of, of man tends to make us want to pull back from our promises, but formal vows can set guidelines for what we resolve to accomplish as we interact with others. Fourthly, a, a, vow can, <clears throat> a vow can help to humble us so that we will seek the strength of God or risk breaking our vow. Now, I know it can go the other way too. Sometimes we make bold statements of promise. We cast out these great oaths to others and really the foundation of those promises is nothing less than our own pride. We are so confident in our own abilities, in our own knowledge, in who we see ourselves to be, that we brashly declare that we will do something a certain way in a certain amount of time, and it's all on us. That's not the kind of vow that God wants us to make. If we think about the seriousness of the things that God calls us to enter into, the covenants that He has called us to, the interactions that He has called us to, such as church membership, such as marriage, we think about these things with a right mind, and God wants us to enter into these promises humbly. He wants us to know that these things that we have determined in our hearts and minds to do are bigger than our abilities to guarantee that we can do them. When a task is measured and evaluated, one who approaches a promise humbly will see that there is much they do not have control over. We are not sovereign. 
to keep a vow, the Lord must strengthen us and cause the right combination of supporting circumstances that come to pass in order for that vow to be kept. Therefore, human vows mean so much less than the promises that that God makes to us. His promises are greater and purer because there is no way that He can fail them. And He needs not rely on anyone besides Himself to fulfill them. But for friends, no matter how confident you sound in, in spouting out an oath or a vow to someone else, there is so much more to the equation than just you. So a vow can work, if we're aware of it, to humble us and make us realize that in order for these guarantees to come true, we must be clinging to the Lord God. When we think of human promises, it's like when you were a child and your friend came over and said, I'll give you a million dollars if you share your ice cream cone with me. A million dollars. Two things, right? That kid does not have a million dollars. Two, that kid has no way to get a million dollars, right? So his promise means very little. So when human beings who are not in control of their destiny like they think that they are, when human beings who are not sovereign spout out some kind of a vow or a promise, it must always be taken with a grain of salt. Because whether or not that vow will be kept is largely dependent on things beyond their grip. Vows can be a humbling reality for mankind. When a promise is entered into, the the promiser should go to his greatest resource to help to keep that promise. And his greatest resource is Christ, trusting in Christ's wisdom, in his provision, in his strength, in, in the steadfastness that human hearts don't possess apart from him. Fifthly, a vow can provide vivid external motivation when internal motivation begins to fall short for us. Every time I hear, I hear this all the time, every time I hear a person give the advice, you know what I think you should do? I think you should just trust your heart. You should just trust your heart. Every time I hear that, I cringe. Because God has helped me to have a more accurate understanding of my heart. And not just mine, but of the human heart in general. We've got to learn that trusting our own heart is not the best policy when the human heart is like a roller coaster ride. When we can one day be feeling great about our promises, motivated to keep them, ready, resolved, steadfast. And the next moment, one obstacle can get in our way and suddenly we feel despair. Suddenly we feel like there's no hope. Suddenly we feel like, why, did I, why do I even try? I'm never going to be able to accomplish this. So when my internal motivation, when my heart is failing me, and it does so very frequently, this vow can come to mind. And I can remember, despite my lack of motivation, I did make a promise to someone. I did give my word. I did make an oath. And so even though I might not have a desire to do the thing that I said that I would do, this oath still stands. Because I don't want to violate that oath and and, and put a dark mark on my character or on the name of God whom I represent, I will stand firm. I will continue to press on. Now we can't let our motivations become primarily external, friends. The Lord God is concerned first and foremost with our heart, with what is inside of us. So vows cannot replace a heart that loves the Lord and wants to do what is right. But when our heart wavers, these external motivators such as vows and oaths can help to put us back on the track that we belong to walk, we belong to be walking upon. Exactly which greater authority that a person would evoke in their oaths and vows is worthy of some careful consideration. People who are living in the old covenant era 
would typically swear to any number of greater powers. They might swear upon their forefathers, on an ancestor, somebody who had a great reputation and was dead and gone. They might swear on their good name. They might swear on a ruler or a king, a sovereign who ruled over an area that was relevant to where they were at. Or they might even you know, swear by some divine power, uh, some semi-god or some, some cultural icon. God's word, however, makes it clear that his covenant people are not to evoke the power of anything other than the greatest power, and that is God himself. So if you've got your Bibles, let's turn to the New Testament for a moment. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 23 for a bit. Matthew chapter 23. This is a section that comes with some great weight. Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees, this group that has opposed him, this group that has tried at every step to make Jesus stumble and to make him look foolish publicly. And every time that they have tried to do this, Jesus didn't flee. He didn't run away. He didn't get overly defensive. He simply stood his ground and spoke the truth. And the Pharisees had no choice but to walk away from him. And so here in Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22, God's got some things to tell us about swearing oaths. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anybody swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, then he is bound by that oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everyone, everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. What do we see here? We see Jesus calling out some of the people of the covenant who were engaging in a very common secular practice. They were putting together all these sub-rules and sub-regulations that gave them loopholes so that they might exit out of a vow that they had made hastily so that they would not be bound by it under God's authority. So some would come along and say, they wouldn't say, I swear by the Lord. They would say, I swear by the temple or I swear by the gold in the temple, or I swear by the altar, or the thing upon the altar. And people were arguing, bickering back and forth, which of these things that you swore by really was binding and true? The Pharisees and others reasoned that if the vow was not made in the name of God, but by some other power associated by God, it would still carry some weight, but it would not be as legally dangerous for them to enter into that vow. It could be negated without fear of godly retribution. However, Jesus points out the hypocrisy of these practices, which were in reality just a disguise for dishonesty. They were simply a mirage for shifty technique of wiggling out of responsibilities. They were making ways for themselves to appear to be honest, when in reality they did not have any intention of fully following through with their oaths and vows. Friends, there is only one who ultimately governs truth. And that one is the Lord God. As Hebrews 4.13 instructs us, there is no creature hidden from his sight, 
but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. This one is the Lord God, and He is the one who governs justice and righteousness. So we might think in our heads that we, have, we haven't really violated a vow because we swore it to a lesser power, but ultimately God is God over truth. So when we say we're going to do something, we are, in a sense, coming under His authority because He is the one who judges those who are, who are true and honest apart from those who break their vows and do not keep their promises. And this begs the question for us here as we see that we have been instructed here basically that there are no vows except for vows sworn to God, that when we say we're going to do something, we should do it. And the question is this, is it ever appropriate for a new covenant believer to make a vow or to pledge an oath to begin with? Is that something that we can even do today? In order to establish an accurate answer to that question, we need to take a close look at Scripture. So flip back a little bit from Matthew 23 to Matthew chapter 5, just for a second. This is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. We spoke a bit about the Sermon on the Mount last week as we looked at the Beatitudes and the, the very contrary nature of what God said was a blessed person compared to what the world would consider a blessed person. We are told that we are to be salt and light, that we are representative of the Lord God. This is a picture of what a disciple's life should practically look like. And then the right application of, of old covenant commands begins to be expressed by Jesus. He says, you've heard it said in the Old Testament, but I say to you this, and Jesus adds his interpretation of the Old Testament texts. And after doing this a couple of times, we get to verse 33, where Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said of, to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And that goes for those of us who don't even have hair. So, <laughs> Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, in order to understand this passage, we've got to establish a basic hermeneutical principle here. We talked a little bit earlier. Paul had mentioned that Brother Jeff's going to be running a, a small group on hermeneutics, focus group, that will help us to understand what is our approach to understanding the Word. How, what's our strategy in coming to this book and really working through it systematically so that we can have confidence that the interpretation we have is not just what we want to see, but is in fact what God desires for us to see in His Word. And so one of the elements of the hermeneutic we need to approach this text with is that Jesus is not going to say anything or do anything that is going to contradict the Old Testament word. How much of this scripture is spoken from, by Jesus? Is it just the red letters? Or is this all the book that God has given to us? Timothy has told us that this is God-breathed. Uh, Paul has told us in the book of Timothy that this is God-breathed, that this is an inspired book that is not just simply the opinions or the perspectives of men, but that the whole thing comes from the Lord God. It is His revelation. So if, if Jesus were to come and say, well, let me just make this clear. The Old Testament is wrong about some things, and so I'm going to give you some different ways of thinking, then He would be in opposition to Himself. So Jesus doesn't come to contradict the Old Testament. 
In this section where he said, you have heard it said of old, but I say to you, Jesus isn't changing things. He's helping us to interpret them properly. He's helping us to see them rightly. And so as we approach this, this topic of vows and oaths, Jesus says, you have heard it said in the past like this. And then he goes on to address much of what Matthew 23 addressed, right? That people would make oaths to things below God. They would make oaths to the temple. They would make oaths uh, uh, to things below the Lord himself. What does it say here? I'm forgetting the passage as I, as I preach it. Uh, to earth, they would make vows to Jerusalem. They would make vows to anything but God because they didn't want to fall into error and be beholden to the Lord God himself. And so Jesus is saying that's the wrong way to make oaths. We can't expect the Lord to let us off the hook just because we swore to something that is His, but is not Him directly. All those things belong to Him. If you swear to the earth, what is the earth? The earth is the Lord's footstool. You're swearing to the Lord. So He's drawing great cautious to those who would enter into oaths flippantly and without caution. In Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 through 2, we'll have this verse on the screen for you. Moses made provisions for vows. But he also carefully laid out some details about how to enforce those vows. So the Old Testament makes room for this. The Old Testament is not saying that vows are wicked in and of themselves, but he is saying that, listen, if you're going to enter into vows, there are guidelines. You've got to do it the right way. And so here Jesus demands that we not vow by any other name than the name of the Lord. We shall not vow if we have no intention of keeping that vow or if we're not certain that we are going to be resolved enough to stand by what we say. Since we should only vow in the name of the Lord, we shall not vow concerning everyday things. You shouldn't make oaths flippantly. You shouldn't just throw them out there. Oh, I make a vow that today I'm going to, I'm going to hit 100 uh, or 10,000 steps on my Fitbit. I'm, I'm making a vow. That's not a worthy vow. When you invoke the name of the Lord, it should be for something serious. It should be for something sacred, for something that really matters, not for something trivial, because the only vows that are worth making are those that are made to the name of the Lord. The book of James reflects on this teaching from our Savior again in verse 12 of James 5, where he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth. See, he's saying swearing by things other than Jesus himself or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So Matthew 5 and James 5 are doing the same thing. They are warning us here not to make these pseudo-oaths by swearing to lesser powers than God. Our yes should be yes. Our no should be no. By living that way, there should not be typically any need for oath-making. But that doesn't mean that every vow is wicked or that every oath is a sin. And if that wasn't convincing enough for you, then think of this. If every vow were a sin, then any of you wearing a wedding ring on the third or the fourth finger of your left hand would need to stand up and repent. Because when we say, I will be yours in holy matrimony, we are entering into a covenant vow, aren't we? This is, this is a fundamental vow that helps our society be what it is. We determine the boundaries of our promise to one another. We say, this is how I will live in fellowship with you, my spouse, I promise to keep these vows, not only by my own strength, but I'm promising before God to turn to Him for strength in these vows, that He might give me the help to love you like He loves His church. That is not a, a wicked thing to do. 
It is a beautiful thing to do. Here's some other examples of vows that we still make. When we surrender to the Lord, when we give Him our life, we're vowing to Him our whole being. We're vowing to make Him our King and to accept Him as Lord over all that we are. In a sense, the sacraments that God gives to us are vows. In baptism, we come before public witnesses and we display our intention to follow Jesus Christ forever according to His Word. When we take communion together, it's a regular reminder of our belonging to Christ because of what He has done to purchase us from sin. That we are to return to Him and trust in His cross and not in our own strength. When we enter into church membership, we just did that a couple of weeks ago with a couple of families here. We're very, very grateful for that. And those families came forward and they signed a covenant agreement. They made a vow to be faithful members of this church. Because membership is not something that we should take lightly. It is, it's a belonging to God's family. And in, in taking that vow, they come under the responsibility and the authority of the people that God has put in place to shepherd them and to care for their souls and to help them through this Christian walk. And of course, vows themselves cannot be fundamentally evil because this God who we worship is a covenanting God. He has entered into relationship with His chosen people every time via covenant oaths and promises. God cannot sin, so vows themselves cannot be sin. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that He should lie, or a son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said it and will He not do it? Or has He spoken and will He not fulfill it? Everything that He says is yes and yes or no and no. He does not change, and yet he still sees a value in entering into these covenant relationships with us. So vows are not strictly prohibited by the word, but man should never make vows unless they are absolutely committed to keeping them. Vows are only ever to be entered into carefully, with great consideration. So let us learn from the wisdom of Solomon here about vows made specifically in the context of worshiping Him as people, uh, the people of Israel were gathering together to worship in probably the temple that Solomon had made. When you make a vow to God, first of all, do not be late in paying it. Do not delay. Do not delay to keep that vow that you have made before God. Verse 4, When you vow God to God, do not delay in paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Friends, what does this mean? It means that fools delay in paying their vows. And he takes no delight in fools. You don't want to be in that category. You don't want to be one of these people that thinks that they can just speak and then act as if they have not spoken. We see some of these delays in Scripture. We see uh, the example in 1 Samuel chapter 1. When Hannah prays to the Lord, she's She's in tears and she asks the Lord to give her a child. She has been barren for many years. Her husband has two wives and the other wife is fertile and is bearing children. And she's cruel to Hannah who doesn't have the capacity to make children. And so she's, she's pleading with the Lord, asking that God would have mercy on her. And God, if you give me a child, says Hannah, I will give him back to you all the days of his life. And then God, miracle of miracles, as she knows her husband, conceives a baby in her womb. She is able to, to, to be with child. And so when this, this baby comes, she steps back just a little bit, and she says, I will give this child to the Lord once he is weaned. So there's a delay there. It's not as if she is heavily, uh, heavily punished for doing that, 
But she says, do what see, she says that she's going to send this child to the temple when he's weaned. And in verse 22, her husband Elkanah said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So he's cautious with his wife. Okay, if that's what you want to do, you can. But do not forget that this vow is something that you made to God. In Luke 9, we get some examples of people who are delaying in their vows. These individuals come up to Jesus, and some of them say they want to follow after him, and, and to the, some of them, he says, leave what you're doing and come and follow me and be a disciple. And in three different examples, we have people that have something better to do right now than come and follow after the Lord God. First, let me go and bury my father. Jesus says, let the, bed, the, the dead bury their dead. First, let me go and bid farewell to my family. Jesus says, he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit to the kingdom of heaven. So, friends, if we make a vow, we are not to make a vow and then just wait forever for that vow to play off. We cannot say that we're going to keep it one day. We should be diligently pursuing that vow that we have made. Promptness illustrates sincerity. When you are constantly delaying the thing that you said that you would do, it usually communicates to the other party that you really don't want to do it and that you probably will not fulfill it. Despite the hardship that it may cost a person in keeping their vow, it's important that we don't make excuses and try to throw off the yoke of promise that we voluntarily took upon our own shoulders. Who will dwell with the Lord? Psalm 15.4 answers and says, He who swears to his own hurt and yet does not change. Do you see that? When we swear a vow to the Lord, and even though keeping it's going to be financially difficult for us, even though it's going to put us out, even though it's going to cut into our free time and, and become difficult for us or cause us harm, when we keep that vow because we've made that vow, the Lord is honored in our honesty. If the vow is acceptable to God, it must be kept, and it should be kept promptly. <clears throat> Vows that are not promises to be kept at the giver's... Vows are not promises that should be kept at the giver's earliest convenience. Rather, they establish a priority in a person's life. A delay gives the impression that what was important at the time of the vow has now become secondary and unimportant. Now, there is a subnote to this. If the vow is not a godly vow, human beings are imperfect. So there are times when we might utter a vow that in order to keep that vow, we would have to sin against the Lord God. What do we do then? How do, how do, we, how do we get out of that? Right? If I make a vow, I make a promise, and then I realize later that to keep that vow would be wrong, such as Jephthah did in Judges chapter 11 when he vowed to sacrifice the first thing that came out of his tent, expecting an animal to come out, and then his daughter came out. Terrible example of the wickedness of man and what happens when we spiral away from the Lord God. In your quiet times this week, you can look at that example in Judges chapter 11. That man, Jephthah, was wrong in keeping his vow. He should have humbled himself before the Lord and confessed his sin instead of adding sin to sin by hurting his own daughter. So there are times when we make a vow and it is best to break that vow so that the name of the Lord won't be further dishonored in our lives. But if we make a vow that is godly, then we should be prompt to keep it. Secondly, we learn in verse 5 that it is better not to vow in the first place than to vow and not to pay that vow. Note that the vow in view here seems to be a pledge to give financially. He says, better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So we're talking about the temple more than likely. This is likely somebody who comes and says, I've been, I've been blessed by the Lord abundantly. When my harvest comes in, I'm going to give X amount of my harvest to God's work. 
or perhaps I've come into some great money through commerce and through business interactions. I promise I'm going to get 20% of it to the Lord because I'm so thankful for His, His blessing. Remember that vows are voluntary in nature. We usually do not need to make them. So any vow that we make should be made with a clear understanding of whether we intend to keep it. There is danger in vows. And that's why this sermon today is called the danger of a promise. Because when we make a vow and we fail to keep it, we have unnecessarily brought regulation upon ourselves, but the Lord God will hold us to it if we have said that we will do it. It reminds me of these Pharisees that Jesus so often opposed, who were not content to just keep the law of God, but felt inclined to add even more laws and even more burdens upon themselves so that they could prove themselves even holier than the regular Israelites all around them. So we shouldn't be quick to make vows. We shouldn't put more burdens on ourselves than are necessary. It is better not to vow in the first place than to vow and not pay. I think here, of course, of Ananias and Sapphira, this New Testament couple who were alive during a very exciting and spirit-filled time of the church. In the first chapters of Acts, we see the amazing miracle of a Savior slain and crucified as a criminal, yet risen again. And the people that are identified with him don't scatter to the world and run away forever. They're afraid at first, but the, the appearance of their risen Lord fortifies their heart and puts them on the path to obedience. And they begin to preach the gospel and show signs and wonders that Jesus Christ is truly working through them. And what happens? The church begins to grow. People begin to see the truth of the gospel. They begin to give their lives to Christ. And they begin to act in radically responsible ways to such a degree that many of the wealthy people in that early community of the church began to sell their resources that they didn't need, their extra stuff, and they would give to the cause of the gospel. They would give the money that they earned from those sales to fund mission work, to fund the churches in places where they were being persecuted or where they didn't have much to take care of themselves. People were radically just offering up their goods, knowing that those goods were truly God's goods anyway. They were doing this voluntarily, out of love. And we have this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who come forward and they, they have a plot of land. It's a valuable plot of land. They sell that plot of land and they come before the people, uh, the apostles who are who are in charge of the church at that point, and they say, here is all that we made from this plot of land. We are giving everything that we, that we earned from this sale to the Lord's work. Did they have to do that? No, they didn't have to do that. But they did it, and they did it publicly. They made a vow. And it became pretty clear that they hadn't any, any intentions of actually keeping that vow. They kept part of the sale for themselves, secretly, and gave the other part of the sale to the church and then declared that it was all that the Lord had blessed them for in that sale. Again, God was not requiring everyone to sell all their stuff and give it to the church. They voluntarily put a vow upon themselves, which they then failed to keep. And in an interesting turn of events, the early church was such a critical moment of growth for God's people. God decided to do something drastic to display how there is no place in the kingdom of God for false vows and people who are, who are saying one thing and doing another. Ananias and Fire both, one at a time, were struck down dead because they lied. Not to men, says the Apostle Peter, but to God himself, to the Holy Spirit. So it is foolish, friends, to enter into vows that we don't need to enter into. And it is even more foolish to enter into a vow if you're not certain that you are going to stay committed to paying that vow. 
God desires to spare us from the actual fallout of not keeping our vows, and so he tells us to not get into them if we can help it. The most common mistake I see with people making vows is when people get married without thinking about it. When people get into a covenant relationship, a man and a wife, but they haven't truly sought the Lord in it, they haven't truly been counseled about whether this is the right time or whether they are ready or whether they're equally yoked. And before too long, life begins to get very difficult. And unfortunately, we live in in a society of, of ease and comfort. And so people would rather step away from their promises than stand by the things that they have said that they would do. And friends, we don't want to be God's church standing before the people of the world as witnesses to Jesus Christ and his transformational power. And yet our churches are full of people who are getting divorces, who are not keeping their words. We want to be a people of promise. So if that is a covenant that you're going to enter into, do it with no escape route. Do not swear by heaven or earth or God's footstool, but come before God himself and many witnesses to declare your decision to love your spouse, not just for as long as it is expedient, but for the rest of your life here on earth. Six, verse six, the first part, makes it clear to us that we are not to let our words cause us to sin. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. The context here shows us that he's talking about a rash vow that is spoken without thinking through. Charles Bridges says, We have burdens and affirmities enough pressing upon us. Let us be careful that we do not rashly or needlessly multiply them. If you choose, as an American citizen, not to serve in the Army or the Navy or the Air Force, the Reserves, the Marines, the Coast Guard, and that's your choice, right? You're free to make that choice. No one's going to hold, you, hold that against you. You've, you've got a life to live, and you could choose to be a soldier or choose not to. But if you sign your name on that document that says that you're going to ante up and give your four years to Uncle Sam, and then two years into it, you decide this is not for you, and you turn around and you walk away, there will be legal consequences to that, won't there? When you rashly speak promises and oaths, without thinking about it, then you're going to find yourself in legal trouble. You're going to find your relationships in peril. You're going to find yourself on thin ice before the Lord your God because he cares about the truth and he wants us to be a people who keep his promises. To make a vow to God carelessly is a form of religious flattery. We come before God and we tell him what we think he wants us to say We don't intend it for the truth, but we say it because we think it'll make God happy, or we think it'll impress the other religious people around us, and it's nothing more than empty flattery. To refuse to keep your vow is a direct insult to the authority that God has over you. A sinful vow is something that can cripple our relationships with others and can affect the way that we view our God. When you don't keep your vow before the Lord God, do you want to come into the Lord's house? Do you want to come near to him in prayer? Do you want to seek him? The enemy would love for us to make vows that we have no business keeping and then have us not keep those vows and then have us so ashamed that we didn't keep our vows that we avoid the Lord altogether. So in order to protect your time with the Lord, don't make oaths and promises that you have no intention of keeping. Watch what you say. Don't make empty promises. The second half of verse 6 instructs us that we are not to say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake to make these vows. 
Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now the messenger that he's speaking about here is likely the priest or the temple attendant. It's a very vague word. It could mean angel. It could mean any number of messengers that might come and deliver a a word to you. But because we're talking about worshiping the Lord God and drawing near to Him humbly, it's probably talking about the priest, one who has come to receive an offering that you promised to give to them in the past and have yet to fulfill. It is therefore shameless to try and rewrite history, so to speak, so that you might wiggle your way out of your vows. This would lead to God being angry on your account. And of course, this is an anthropomorphism. God is not angry like us, sparked to an emotional outrage because of an event, but rather knows that injustice is wrong and and is against it, is opposed to it. Even under the covenant of grace, friends, even though Jesus Christ has died to wash us clean from our sin, even though his holy sacrifice was perfect to cleanse us from every unrighteousness, doing so brings sinners into the family of God and makes them sons and daughters of the king. And a son or daughter is beholden to the authority of their father. And a father has every right to chastise one who does not fall in line with the house's rules. So the Lord God will at times, even for a believer, chastise us, will give us uh, a correction so that our false vows, our vows that reflect poorly upon his truth and his justice, uh, will not persist. In verse 7, the final verse that we're looking at today, we see a kind of repetition of actually verse 3, which I glossed over last week. We didn't really take care of that verse because it was tied so closely to this set of verses here. Verse 3 in chapter 5 says, For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. And then in Ecclesiastes 5, 7, the verse says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one that you must fear. Now the dreams that are addressed here it can be confusing to us. We're trying to understand what, is the, what are these dreams pointing to. They are best understood as daydreams, the wanderings of the human mind. So that in verse 3, a person who enters into the house of God with unguarded steps is busy in all the other areas of his life to such a degree that the thoughts of what his business is doing and what his family is doing, what his household is doing, what all his possessions are doing are constantly running through his mind when he should be thinking about and focused on the Lord God. So instead of praying to the Lord God, dreams are floating through his head. Have you ever experienced that? Where I'm praying too long and you're sitting there thinking about what's going to eat for lunch after church. <laughs> you're thinking about whether your kid's making too much noise today and whether it's distracting other, distracting other people. You're thinking about anything other than what's actually being prayed for. You can do it in the middle of a song. You can be hitting the notes perfectly and yet none of the words of the song could really be registering on the radar of your mind or heart. So friends, we need to take verse 3 and verse 7 as a warning that when our minds are fixed on the things of earth, we can become distracted. We can, we can be thinking about the things of earth and we can make vows that we should never make because we want to we wanna impress people. We want them to think that we are holy. We want to give them a guarantee so they'll enter into business with us. There are all kinds of mistakes that are made when our minds are not on Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of our heart. <clears throat> When one busies themselves with the affairs of the world, rather than listening, they find their mind wavering, and God is not glorified in worship as he ought to be. And so, friends, may the Lord help our worship to be meaningful. May he help it to be humble and responsible. May we guard our minds that our actions will not be empty gestures, void of love, and only busy hands with no mind or heart for God. 
May we guard our steps that our Lord is honored in the ways that we draw near to Him. Let's bow in a word of prayer for just a moment, and then we've got a short presentation that we want to give to you about our children's church. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your truth and for all that you have blessed us with today in your word. May you amplify its effect in our lives that people might see the good deeds that we do and not give us credit or glorify us or put us on a pedestal, but rather they would look right past us to the God that we serve and glorify you. You reign in heaven. You reign here on earth, God. You are the ultimate authority. And we praise you for the promises that you will keep in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.